to our first podcast episode of 2018, which features a talk by Dr. Rebecca McGann on one of Norfolk Heritage Centre's greatest treasures, the Norwich Apocalypse. Check our website for more information, and thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody, and thank you very much uh, for coming. I know it's not the greatest weather out there. Uh, there is a handout that goes with this talk, which I think Chris will kindly hand out. He's going to make some copies and hand that out. Um, so this is a repeat of a talk that I gave about this time last year. Um, I wish I had new research to offer you, but you could probably see that I have a small child. I'm still on maternity leave with my second at the moment, so perhaps this time next year I might have got some more research done and I can tell you something new. Um, we'll cover a fair bit of ground in this. Hopefully we'll get through everything. If you have any questions, please come and find me at the end. And please tell me if you can't hear me down the back. Um, okay, so we'll start. So the Norwich Apocalypse is a mid-13th century illustrated commentary on the Book of Revelation uh, that's now held in the care of the Norfolk Heritage Centre. It's among the oldest items we have in our store, but very little is known about the manuscript. It first appears with any significance in M.R. James's 1931 survey, The Apocalypse in Art, where he describes it as the rudest, what he means is the crudest, uh, he has ever seen, and condescendingly remarks that he shall include it in his catalogue as it is unlikely to be mentioned anywhere else. And actually, history has proven him right. So to date, there exists only a single reproduction of the manuscript in print, and it is this, it's the one at the top, very small black and white uh, image of the opening page of the manuscript and this is in a 1957 publication on the Norwich Public Libraries by Hepworth and Alexander. Um, and to this can be added only a handful of brief bibliographic descriptions. So there's a lot to learn about this manuscript. And I'll start with a general overview with its donation and its physical character. So the donation of the manuscript. The Norwich Apocalypse became part of the City Library in the early 17th century, and much of what we know about the manuscript dates from this point onwards. Um, and there's, if we get the, when you get the handout, uh, there is a summary of the history of the City Library and the manuscript on that. The City Library was founded in 1608 by order of the City Assembly as a reference library and lodgings for visiting um, preachers. It was located in the New Hall uh, that was erected in 1543 over the South Porch, of the Church of the Black Friars, which were the Dominicans, now known as St Andrew's Hall, which had been purchased for the city by Augustine Stewart in 1540 following the dissolution. And you can see it here in a roughly contemporary uh, uh, etching of about 1650 by Daniel King. Guardianship of the city library changed a number of times over the succeeding centuries, uh, first to what's called the public library in 1801, and then again in 1815. Um, the order was revoked in 1805, due to the collection uh, suffering insufficient care. So it went to the public library, it came back. The city library went back to the public library. Then it went to the free library in 1857 after a report again flagged issues concerning the storage conditions of the city library. And then when the manuscripts and early printed works uh, were moved to the Norfolk and Norwich Museum in 1868, before the collection was reunited in the new Central Library building in 1963, which of course was one burnt down by fire in 1994, and then finally moving to the Norfolk Heritage Centre in 2001. Now, from its inception, the City Library existed as an endowed library. Donations came from the more esteemed and affluent sectors of the local community, with most made during the first 20 years when the library, library flourished as a reference collection. Now, the Norwich Apocalypse contains no book plates, coats of arms, colophons, labour days or inscriptions of any kind to help piece together the provenance or history of its ownership. Do you need some help there? Are you okay there? Yeah. Would you like to... Do you want to share? Because I don't... <clears throat> so there's nothing within the manuscript really to help us piece together its history of its ownership. Author catalogues for the City Library collection of 1706, 1732, 1776 and 1883 
Uh, they each record that the manuscript, which is called In Apocalypsen, was donated by Thomas Atkins, it's the one abbreviated to ATK, in 1618. Now, there's no mention of the donation in the City Assembly minutes of 1618, but Atkins' name does appear among the attendees of the corporation meetings that year. And so he would have known about the existence of the City Library, its members, its collection, um, through the uh, corporation meetings. Sorry. Yeah, so, so he would have known about the library, its collection, through the City Library Committee reports that were presented to the Assembly. Now, most likely, the information about Atkins' donation that you see here was reproduced from the donation book, which is this here, which is held at the record office. It's also known as the vellum book. This was created in 1659 as part of the major reorganisation of the City Library in the mid-1650s. Uh, it's a book that lists the names of donors in chronological order from 1608 to 1737. So it's presumed from this that a list of benefactors must have been in existence before 1659, before this was made, but no documentation detailing as much survives for the first 50 years of the City Library. Now, the entry in the donation book, which you can see here on the right, records that in 1618, Thomas Atkins, who's a merchant of, Venice, oh, of Norwich, sorry, <laughs> uh, gave, there's a list of works here, and at the end it says, and five pounds for the purchase of more books. Now, the Norwich Apocalypse is listed as in Apocalypsen. It's this one here, the manuscript with, with the Richardus is a reference to Richard of Wetheringset, who's the author of the other work in the manuscript. And this is why if we look back at the author catalogues, In Apocalypse and always comes under R. It's due to this other authorship. Now, much of what we know about Thomas Atkins dates, uh, relates to his successful political career in Norwich and later in London, where he became sheriff and then MP for Norwich in 1640 and 1645. And he was eventually knighted for his services by Cromwell in 1657. Atkins made his fortune as a cloth merchant and civic leader, acquiring considerable wealth after he moved to London in the late 1630s, when he took advantage of civil troubles and became a major supplier of cloth and other provisions for the army. But in 1618, Atkins was not the wealthy merchant and politician he was destined to become. At 32 years old, he was just embarking on a political career with his second election as councilman for Coinsford, and perhaps keen to support learned preaching to the community at a time when Puritans, as Atkins was himself, started to hold more political sway in local government, Atkins made his generous donation of books and money to the city library. And this is not the only documented instance of his supporting library institutions. The earliest part of the catalogue for St Margaret's Library in King's Lynn, here which dates to about 1632, mentions a donation of £20 by Thomas Atkins and his mother, Joan. So we know he has this interest in books and learning. Now, this familiar interest in literature and learning posits a new line of inquiry to consider the history of the Norwich Apocalypse. The burial entry for Thomas's father, who's the one, it's the one on the left, his name is John Atkins, for St Margaret's Church in King's Lynn, it's dated 17th of September 1617, has the added notation, Alderman twice mayor, and this is a reference to his mayoral standings of 1607 and 1614-15. Like his son, John Atkins was a prosperous merchant and mercer. His will, which is dated the 20th of January 1618, merely states that he left everything to his wife Joan and some money to the poor. And though it mentions items of gold and chattels, it remains silent about books and manuscripts, and there's no inventory for his estate that survives in archival records. And yet I suspect that Thomas may have inherited a collection of books after his father's death or used any inheritance to purchase books as there is but a year or even less than a year between when John died in uh, 1617 and the 32-year-old Thomas donated the volumes to the City Library collection. Um, again, this is just a theory. I don't really have anything to back that up, but the dating sort of fits. Now, if we turn to the physical character of the manuscript... So the manuscript contains 107 medieval leaves plus two modern end leaves each at the beginning and end of the manuscript. The medieval contents comprise a, there's a mid 13th century end leaf and this contains a number table of the last 134 chapters of a work on sacraments. Uh, there's a table of arts that's believed to date to the 14th century and this was thought to be added at the time of binding. 
Uh, and then there's the two main works. So you have uh, In Apocalypsen, which is uh, mid-13th, probably 14th century, uh, from folio 6 to 79. And then you have Richard of Wuthering Sets, um, Quae Brene Present, which is a work on, um, an instructional work on sermons. Um, so we're only looking at this one. So it's like a book within a book. Now these assorted works were brought together in the 14th century and remain in their original oak covers. So this is oak was typical for covers in Northern Europe during the later Middle Ages. The only embellishment that you can see are the beveled edges. Um, and this again became a regular feature on manuscripts from the late 13th century. The overall dimensions of the manuscript are about 270 millimetres high by 193 millimetres wide. The leaves were trimmed flush with the board at the time of binding and sewn, you can see in the middle picture, with a split cord method onto five supports that were then channeled into the wooden boards. And this is standard binding practice um, of the period. So you can see the cord comes here and ties around, and then they're channeled into the inside of the covers. Additional support from diagonally sewn headbands and endbands were conventional late medieval techniques designed to tighten up the binding. And you can see those in the first image at the top and the bottom. There is evidence the choirs, and a choir is when you take a collection of papers, fold them together, what you have is a choir, uh, have been re-sewn onto their medieval support structure. And we can tell this because there's a series of full page uh, pitch pages that have been reinserted re into the choirs using cotton strips that have not discolored at the same rate as the rest of the parchment and seem too tightly woven, and what I mean by that is machine woven, uh, to be part of the original material of the Norwich Apocalypse. These cotton strips, they wrap beneath the fold of the choir, which means they could only have been put there if you've taken the choir out, as in you've um, re-sewn it. The reinsertion of the illustrations using cotton strips was part of the first significant attempt to conserve the manuscript, and it likely occurred at the same time that rice paper tape and parchment patches were used to strengthen and restore damaged parchment. Now you can see the parchment patch is quite obvious. I don't know if you can see that's from the rice paper tape there. Now such techniques were typical of late 19th century conservation practices um, and documentary evidence exists of a probable point at which this was undertaken. In 1871, the li City Library Committee invited John Quinton, who was the then librarian for the Norfolk and Norwich Literary Institution, to repair some books, and major repairs were carried out to the collection over the decade. Now, it's possible that the Norwich Apocalypse was included in this major repair project, but as the manuscript um, had moved to the museum collection in 16, uh, 1868, so just before this, they're in the same building, though, the museum and um, the library collection, it's possible that conservators in the museum carried out repairs to manuscripts in, their care in the later part of the 19th century or even the early 20th century. And we know also that in 1931, there was an archivist who was appointed to the monument room at the Castle Museum um, and carried out repairs to the manuscripts in the central library. So there's these two points that we perhaps think this could have happened. So now if we turn to the textual content of the Norwich Apocalypse. So the Book of Revelation was written at the end of the first century by a Christian seer and prophet called John. Its scriptural authority rested upon the fact the fathers of the early church believe it to be written by one of Jesus' 12 disciples, that's John, the son of Zebedee, who is also the reputed author of the Gospel of John. Of course, we now no longer believe um, the same author wrote both works. It belongs to a genre of prophetical literature particular to the ancient world. We have examples from the Tanakh and extra-canonical Jewish and Christian writings. And these generally involve, I won't go through all of these, I'll just talk about the ones that are relevant to um, John's revelation. Uh, a cosmological journey through the levels of heaven and the underworld. Um, they usually have highly symbolic and vivid dreams or visions of the future course of history. These usually involve angels, demons, beasts, and have violent repetitions. There's a heavenly guide and mediator. It covers a vast chronological span of time, so they show things in the past, things as they are and how they will be. And there's always this sort of triumphant movement in which the physical world is recreated as the kingdom of God. 
Now, Revelation opens with God sending an angel to instruct John to narrate a vision of the one like the Son of Man, that's Christ, that he has just received. This is the what was at Revelation 1. John then describes the situation of the churches in his day. This is the what is at Revelations 2-3 through letters to seven of Paul's churches in Asia Minor. Some of these letters are encouraging, others scolding. And they touch on various issues facing the early Christian movement, such as persecution, uh, false teaching, and apathy. The rest of Revelation is given over to his vision of the future course of history to the end of time. This is Revelation 4 through to 22. And it begins with John being taken up to heaven where he sees the throne of God eternally worshipped and praised by 24 elders and the four living creatures. The majestic figure on the throne holds a scroll with seven seals, which records the future of earth but cannot be opened by one uh, except by one who is worthy. A lamb, this is a representation of Christ, appears before the throne. He takes the scroll and breaks the seals one by one. The first four seals bring forth the four horsemen. So there's the first with a bow and the crown to conquer, the second with a great sword to take peace from the world, the third holding a pair of scales to judge, and the fourth who is death. The fifth seal uh, offers some reprieve by bringing forth the martyrs, but with the sixth seal comes a climactic disaster of cosmic proportions, where the sun turns black and the sky vanishes before the tribes of Israel offer homage to God. There's silence that follows the opening of the seventh seal, but then there's another new set of seven more disasters that rain down on the earth. Each one of these natural and cosmic events heralded by an angel blowing a trumpet. This is from Revelations 8 to 11. The seventh trumpet heralds the reign of God and Christ, and this is truly the beginning of the end, for what follows is a hideous vision of a pregnant woman and a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. This represents the devil or Satan. The woman gives birth to a male child who is caught up to God's throne. The archangel Michael battles and is victorious over Satan. Then there's more hideous beasts emerge, and these are given power by Satan, and the people of um, the earth blindly follow them. Then there's this wondrous vision um, of the Lamb and the 144,000 redeemed, but no sooner are we comforted by this than seven more angels appear, each uh, with a bowl filled with God's wrath, which they pour onto the earth, causing further destruction. So you get disease, death, and misery. The end finally comes with the destruction of the great whore of Babylon, which is the city ultimately responsible for the persecution of the saints. The city is overthrown and its defeat is followed by a final cosmic battle in which Christ and his heavenly armies is pitted against the forces of the Antichrist. Christ wins, of course, uh, and the Antichrist and his false prophet are thrown into a lake of burning sulphur to be tormented forever. Satan is imprisoned in a bottomless pit while Christ and his saints rule the earth for a thousand years. The devil re-emerges for a brief time ahead of the final judgment in which the dead are raised and those that sided with Christ are taken into heaven and those that sided with the devil are sent into the torment in the lake of fire. John ends his work with a vision of a new heaven in which the new Jerusalem descends from the sky and Christ reigns eternal. So as you can tell, the book of Revelation is dramatic. It uses vivid language to tell of angels, beasts, cataclysmic events, natural disasters and heavenly beings. And its repetitive use of similes creates a narrative full of allegory and symbolic language that leaves little wonder it was so popular among the visual arts from the early Middle Ages. The cyclic repetition of seemingly endless catastrophes, these seven seals, seven angels with trumpets, the seven balls, are broken only by brief instances of God exalted and work to create a sense of cosmic crisis that is ultimately relieved with the sense that God has saved those who suffered persecution not just today, but for the rest of time. The apocalyptic agenda in which this vision of the New Jerusalem is constructed tapped into a dualism that's found in many eschatological works in antiquity. This ancient Jewish and Christian worldview of revelation encompassed ethical, spatial and temporal aspects. So we're looking at good and evil, heaven and earth, the physical, the spiritual, now and then. But most unusually for an apocalypse, John did not place this struggle between good and evil in the deep past, but rather in his own time and looking forward to a future that is about to unfold. Many early Christians, including John, came to view the arrival of the Son of Man and especially his resurrection as marking the beginning of the end of time, but one in which they were still waiting for the second coming of Christ, what's known as parousia, which in Greek means coming, of presence. But as time went on, the, the end that John was so adamant was near did not come, and yet the relevance of the book of Revelation could not be dismissed, for it was declared by John to be a direct revelation from God through Christ by his angel. We're told this at Revelations 1.1 and Revelation 22. 
So exegetes reinterpreted, updated, and reviewed the meaning of John's extraordinary vision in a series of commentaries on the book of Revelation. Most medieval commentaries on Revelation were produced by Benedictine and Augustinian monks between the 9th and 12th centuries, with fewer in the 13th century when there's an explosion of illustrated apocalypses. One of the most popular in England in the later Middle Ages was written by a Benedictine monk called Berengordus. Authorship was later mistakenly attributed to Ambrose, and the best mod available modern edition is still the Patrologia Latina of 1879, where it is classified within a collection of works by the 4th century uh, Bishop of Milan, Ambrose, following a wrongful attribution by the 16th century church leader, Cuthbert Tunstall. History has left us little trace of the true author of the commentary. We don't really know with any certainty when Berengordus wrote, where he wrote, or even if we spell his name correctly. Now, Berengordus was traditionally believed to have written his commentary in the 9th century, now, the most comprehensive study of Berengordus to date is Dirk Viss's 1996 publication, Apocalypse as Utopian Expectation, and this supports a 9th century date for the monk. Now, Visser argues that the earliest surviving manuscript of which the oldest extant copy is in Angers and dates from before 1066 were copied from even earlier manuscripts from about 10, uh, 1050 onwards. He suggests that the copying of Berengordus's commentary into parts of Western France and England was fueled by the uh, movement of monks after the conquest of 1066 and the ensuing monastic reforms by Lanfranc that brought about the founding of new monasteries and the explosion of monastic libraries. Visser identifies him with a Bernay Gordus um, of Lupus, who's mentioned in uh, Lavillain's edition of Lupus's letters, um, and this. Bernay Gordus was a 9th century monk at the Ferraris Abbey, who was perhaps a protege of Lupus Sabatus, who was active in the later part of Homo's career, um, and this Homo also produced um, a highly influential commentary on the Book of Revelation, and it's supposed from this that both Homo and this Berengordus Bernay Gordus wrote their commentaries around the same time at St. Germain of Auxerre. By contrast, um, the consensus in art historical scholarship is for a later date for Berengordus, typically around 1100, and this is on the basis that the earliest extant manuscripts date from about this time or soon after, and that there is no evidence that this 9th century Bernay Gordus mentioned by Lupus ever wrote anything. But whether he wrote in the 9th or the 12th century, Berengordus was certainly aware of and drew influence from other commentators on revelations, and particularly this Heimo Voxer. And his writing employs styles of interpretation and ideologies, particular to medieval thought and culture. So we have a look at some of them. So first off, allegory. And this was a principal method of scriptural interpretation in the medieval period. And it features strongly in Berengordus's gloss. So people, places, objects, they all symbolize good, evil, as are their recurrences in particular numbering. So the seven visions, seven stars, seven angels, the 24 elders, and his work reads like a seemingly endless series of allegorical <coughs> interpretations. And if you ever get the chance, there is an uh, English translation of the Trinity Apocalypse, and you can read that, and his description of the New Jerusalem is just astounding. Every single part has some meaning. It takes ages to read through, but it is quite astounding. Berengordus's commentary also has undercurrents of anti-Jewish sentiments that tap into broader considerations in medieval culture about the role of the Jews. So he recognises the fundamental importance of Old Testament prophets and their instruction of the Jews as the chosen people of God, but then he reverts to a, the conventional Christian interpretation about the opening of the sixth seal as the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and its temple at the time of the Emperor Titus as punishment of the Jews for their rejection of Christ. There are also some features that are particular to Berengordus's commentary. One is the periodization of salvation history into seven ages. Now, Berengordus adapts the days of creation as the ages of the world, and this was popularized centuries earlier by Augustine and Bede, to his symbolic understanding of the seven seals at Revelation 6 as the ages of history. Now, in this manner, Berengordus follows the 9th century commentator Hamo, but he extends Hamo's three Old Testamental ages to four, so that each of the first four seals, which are the four riders, stands for an Old Testamental ages of the church. So you have Noah, the patriarchs, Moses and his laws, and the prophets David and Elisha. In his vision of the church eternal, the final three seals represent the age of the New Testament. So you have the fifth seal, which is the age of the saints, 
The sixth seal marks the destruction of the Jewish state, and the seventh seal heralds the incarnation of Christ, who reigns with the glory of God and the saints. Another thing that is particular to Berengorda's commentary is his unmistakable optimism, and this positivity sets it apart from other medieval apocalypse commentaries. His utopian mindset repeatedly refocuses the reader's attention towards the glorious second coming of Christ rather than on the horrors dealt out by a wrathful God or the insufferable reign of the Antichrist. So he sees that all the horrors due to befall the human race are merely signs that the glory of God and his new Jerusalem are coming. Berengordus' positivity even extends to his unique interpretation of the four horsemen who wreak havoc on the earth. Now, these horsemen are usually treated as threatening tribulations, but Berengordus gives them a more favourable purpose, separating the horses and their riders, and interprets the rider, even the fourth rider who is deaf, as representations of Christ and the Lord. And this leads to the last point, which is that Berengordus' approach to John's vision is centred upon the church and Christ. It is ecclesiological and it is Christological. His seven visions promote a Christocentric eschatology that is particularly apparent at the beginning of his seventh vision, with the celebration of the promised marriage between Christ and the church as announced by John the Baptist. And he does this by repeatedly citing John 3.29, which talks about the bride and the bridegroom. But despite his originality, Berengordus left no traceable influence on other commentators of the medieval period. So none adopted his division of salvation history or his encouraging interpretation of the fourth rider. And yet Berengordus's commentary would be among the most copied apocalypse commentary in Northern Europe in the 12th and 13th centuries, and particularly in luxury illustrated manuscripts from the mid-13th century onwards. So we have a look now at how this text is laid out in the Norwich Apocalypse. So the Berengordus commentary is very long, and most illustrated Anglo-Norman apocalypses of the late 13th and 14th centuries, which contain it, are luxury manuscripts that set extracts of the gloss beside passages from Revelation but the Norwich Apocalypse contains the full commentary of Berengordus. Now the text is entered in Latin, which is um, the original language of the commentary, in two columns, with no variation in sizing between Berengordus's commentary and the scriptural extracts from the Book of Revelation upon which it elucidates, the latter distinguished merely by the presence of underlining in red ink. So it might be quite hard to see. There's some passages up here. You might be able to see the faint line and they are the scriptural passages, and then what follows is the commentary on that. (coughs) Minor differences in hand suggest two scribes were involved with copying the commentary. The first scribe producing the first two choirs, that's folios 6 to 27, and the second scribe producing the rest, that's folios 28 through to 77. Both scribes use a low-grade Gothic script. I would classify it as either literal minuscula Gothic Textualis Rotunda, or a glossing script, which is an even lower grade, smaller, simplified version of the Textualis Rotunda. Now, Textualis Rotunda is the lowest grade of Gothic bookhand and is characterised by a highly abbreviated and compressed lettering that has a roundness of form and remains separate, and this is in contrast to the cursive and bastard scripts that would appear in England and on the continent in the later Middle Ages. It does not have the care of execution that comes with high grade of Textualis hands, such as those found in the high-quality illustrated apocalypses. And here is the Getty Apocalypse. Um, And if you have a look, you're looking at the small diamond-shaped serifs on the minims of the lettering. So these bits here, it's a bit hard to see on here. But that's a sign of a far higher grade of hand, um, what I would probably classify as textura quadrata. Um, And it produces a very nice text that's quite easy to read. But what we have is this. So the hand of the first scribe is characterised by a lateral compression which produces tall, narrow letters that's accentuated by the notable height or elongation of the ascenders and descenders and the sharp finials at the end of the letters. And you can see this with the the H and the D, very high. The hook of the H comes right under the letter there. And the overall quality of this first scribe is quite poor and tends to have a hurried look. We have a look at the hand of the second scribe. It is rounder and squatter. The uh, lack of height particularly noticeable on the ascenders. Looking here at this D, you can see compared to the first scribe, it's much shorter. The second scribe also produces less characters per line than the first scribe and shows a greater care of execution that creates a comparatively neater appearance that is easier to read. 
And if we look at some particular differences in the hands, if we look at the A, uh, the hook on the A of the first scribe is closed, and this is a feature that would appear with increasing frequency um, in the late 13th, 14th century, where is the second scribe it remains open. Now, if we look at the T here, the line intersects the stem on that T, this one it sits above, and with the G, it's almost a reverse here. It's got a sort of a little added serif and remains open. On the scribe of the second hand, it almost looks like an eight. So. Berengordus's commentary ends on the verso of Folio 77. There's a short piece on the Antichrist that's called De Antichristo et Autus Wis that begins on the recto of Folio 78 and another on the eight miracles of the nativity that's found on Folio 79. These have entirely different hands to those of the main scribes and use a bastard Anglicanus script, which is a hybrid of the Gothic hand um, and cursive elements that produce uh, a sense of speed and fluidity that's not found in the more formal appearance of the Gothic texture hand. So if we have a look at how the text is divided um, in, in the manuscript, Berengordus divided his commentary on Revelation into seven visions, visio, as they're called in Latin. Um, if you have the handout, there is a list. I think it's the second part on that main page. There's a list of the... Um, where the visions appear within the text and within the manuscript. Now, it's not an even division of the chapters in Revelation, but rather designed to accentuate the themes of the instruction and letters to the seven churches, the vision of the throne of heaven, then there's the three sets of disasters and turmoil, uh, the judgment and the new Jerusalem. Now, medieval numbers corresponding to the appropriate vision for that particular part of the text are written above the left column on the, each verso of in Apocalypse. And what you're looking at is that number that's right at the top there. It looks like a three, but it's not a three. Ooh, I'm going to So we know these are medieval in form. If you have a look at the letters that I put on the left-hand side of the screen, you can see that the numbers uh, 4, 5 and 7, they don't have the appearance as they do today. They only took that appearance from about the 15th century onwards. So we know these are um, numbers that appeared earlier than that. The numbers were likely added soon after the choirs were collated and constitute the earliest navigational aid in the work. Visions 1, 4, 5, 6 and 7 are also, also titled in Latin at the top of the page on which the new vision begins. So, if you have a look here, right at the top in Latin is written Visio, <coughs> that should be a three. I think, oh no, it's four, Visio four. Um, additionally, visions five, six, and seven are titled in rubrics, which is red ink, uh, within or beside the section of column where the new vision begins, but it uses Roman numerals, which suggests the rubrics were added um, at a different point than when these medieval numbers were added. And it might be incredibly hard to see, but that's the vision there, which be vision seven in rubrics. Uh, later on, I would suggest uh, probably in the 18th, 19th century, Roman numerals 1 to 22 were written in black ink as headers along the top of each recto and verso of the commentary. So you're looking at these numbers right in the middle of the columns at the top. They appear on each side of each page. These follow the conventional chapter divisions uh, of the book of Revelation with two exceptions. Uh, chapter 8 begins at Revelation 8.2 and chapter 12 begins at Revelation 11.19. Aside from chapters 1 and 2, the beginning of each chapter is also specified by rubrics detailing the number of the new chapter within or next to the part of text where it starts in what appears to be the same hand as the numbered heading. So when they did these, they probably did... It's going to be really hard to tell on that screen. I'll have to do it from here. I'm trying to see where one starts. Oh, it's not this. That's Roman lettering for the start of the new chapter. Now, now I would suggest that whoever added the numbers were also uh, responsible for the rubrics for the visions as well. They have a, quite a similar hand. 
Section breaks are also emphasised by decorated initials, of which there are 27 in total, uh, used for the main chapter divisions for the Book of Revelation, and at the beginning of each of Baron Gordis's uh, seven visions. There's also one on the Rector of Folio 76, um, for which I don't know why it's there. I can't quite explain it yet. Uh, the most elaborate <coughs> is the A at the beginning, which is this one here, which stands five lines high. The rest of them are like these. They stand two or three lines high. And they have a common form, but appear in three um, different colour variations. Uh, so it appears first with a red letter with thin black or dark blue decorative flourishes and the reverse of that, which you can see in the middle picture here. Uh, and these are particular to the choirs of the first scribe. Then you have combinations of black letters with thin red decorative flourishes and black letters with red and blue field decorative flourishes for the choirs of the second scribe. So these ones here and this with the red and the blue here. And there's similar examples are found in other late medieval and early Renaissance manuscripts of Northern Europe. Um, here's some examples, including one from the Trinity Apocalypse. So an assortment of marginalia is found throughout the manuscript and date from various points in the manuscript's history. Those from the medieval period include catchwords. And this is a term to describe when the first words of the next choir were written at the end of the previous one. So these became common from the 13th century onwards following the great expansion of, of manuscript production in the preceding century and was used to aid the correct collation of choirs. So if you're handing out um, works to be copied to different scribes and you need them all to come back and put them in the right order, you can use the words to link one choir to the next. Um, and what we have here is the abbreviation down the bottom right here which you won't be able to read, but it says Frenos Quibus Equi Regnator, which talks about the bridles of the horses, and it's written along the bottom there, and starts again. It's written again at the top up here, so you know that that is to follow there. Corrections are mainly in the form of insertion, with a corrected word or words, and it's usually a single, single word, particularly the abbreviation QO for quo or quad, that was placed to the side of the affected text. And we're looking at... Longer phrases um, used a thing called sign of returns, which is um, a form of sub-punctuation sub which marked uh, marginal corrections and their associated text using letters, decorative marks, or geometric designs. Um, and what we have here is it's underlined in red ink, so we know it's part of scriptural text that's been missing from the text. And it's got, you can't really tell here, but it's a circle with a line through it. And it's this bit here. So you know when you're to read here, you see this mark, and you read down there. These corrections likely happened at the time of production, during the checking of the text after the sheet sheets had been com uh, completed and collated. Nota bene were designed to draw the reader's attention to particular passages. Um, in the Norwich Apocalypse, these are typically abbreviated to N-O-V-N, or otherwise a symbol. And what we're looking at is that's, you can't really read it, but it's an N-O-V-N. Otherwise, you get marks like this, just on the side. Now, the script differs from that of the two scribes in the main text and has a more cursive appearance, suggesting the nota bene were added by later users of the manuscript. And the same holds true for the almost illegible scribble in um, pencil or very faint ink that's entered below the main text or sometimes beside the column. And I'd suggest that these all date from the time it was used as a reference work in the city library. And what you find things like this scribble down here. Would you like to move back so you can yes. see? So that's its textual content. We'll now have a look at its iconographic content. As an illustrated manuscript, uh, the Norwich Apocalypse belongs to a broader conversation about the history of late medieval illustrated English apocalypses. Now, we don't know why these suddenly appeared in the middle of the 13th century, but some suggestions put forth in academic scholarship include a link with the Franciscans. Now, in 1955, Robert Frayen was among the first to write about the English apocalypses in relation to the estratological views and prophecies of the controversial 12th century Calabrian abbot Joachim of Fior, 
whose millenarian ideology used the Trinity as a mo model to divide time into three fundamental epochs. So if you think of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So you have the age of the Father, which is the Old Testament, the age of the Son, which is the New Testament, and this goes from Christ to 1260, and as we'll see, the particular date of 1260 is worked out from parts in Revelation, and the age of the Holy Spirit, um, which is when the order of the just would rule the church, um, and this order being later identified with the Franciscan order that was founded by Francis of Assisi in 1209. Since Freyan's influential study, art historical discourse has considered a further a, further, a possible uh, association between the emergence of apocalypse manuscripts and in particular illustrated English apocalypses and the rise of the Franciscan movement in Western Europe during the 13th century. And according to this argument, English Franciscans identified themselves symbolically with aspects or characters within the apocalypse text. And one such identification concerned the angel of the sixth seal at Revelation 7, whose sign of the living God was likened to the stigmata of St. Um, Francis. The Yorkist uh, sympathiser John of Palmer, who was Minister General for the Order until 1257, was the first to make this parallel. Along with other Franciscans, he showed an interest in the writings of Joachim Fiore about the age of the spirit, which would follow the reign of the Antichrist and precede the Last Judgment, and viewed the rise of the Franciscan order as a sign that the age of the spirit and the ensuing um, rule of the church by the order of the just was upon them. A second contemporary identification was with the two witnesses who preached for 1260 days in Revelation 11 and the 24-month reign of the beast of Revelation 13. Now, these two lengths were the same, and it came to be accepted that the two witnesses would preach in the time of the reign of the beast, or the Antichrist, who would persecute and kill them. That there were two of them was linked to the passage in Mark 6, in which Christ sends out his apostles two by two. Such references were of great importance uh, to the new orders of friars, particularly the Franciscans and the Dominicans, who saw themselves as the new apostles of the 13th century and particularly the Franciscans who understood themselves as akin to the witnesses in preaching against the evils of their time and against bad rulers. And here we think of especially of the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Frederick II. And there are even examples of the witnesses depicted as members of these holy orders. And we have here, you can see, the two witnesses dressed in the typical garb. Yeah. More recently, Nigel Morgan has proposed an historical context for the sudden appearance um, of illustrated apocalypses in England in the mid-13th century. He suggests a connection between Bible moralises, and these are picture Bibles with commentaries made by the royal family of France from about 1220-1250, and the French royal family in England. Now, the earliest fully illustrated apocalypses of the 13th century are found in the first copies of the Bible moralises pr produced in France, and here's an example of um, Harley Manuscript 1527. They're lovely things here. Uh, so this is the second quarter of the 13th century. The commentary in the apocalypse part of these Bible moralises were set as short extracts beside the pictures and were taken from a recent commentary of the years uh, around 1200, but does not survive. A copy of the Bible moralise was in England in the middle years of the 13th century and perhaps belonged to Henry II and his Queen Eleanor of Provence. This may have been a gift from the King of France when the English royal family spent the Christmas of uh, 1254 as his guests. So Morgan suggests a growing awareness of the Bible moralises um, may have been a catalyst for the production of Apocalypse Manuscript as both set the Apocalypse texts as commentary extracts and it's quite an appealing theory he has. But whatever the reason, illustrated apocalypses appeared in England and parts of northern France in about 1250 and were instantly popular among the aristocracy. Two types of commentary typically appear. You have the Berengordus Gloss, as we have, and what is known as the French Prose Commentary, which was a French adaptation of a Latin commentary, possibly dating to the early 13th century, that sourced extracts used in the apocalypse commentaries from the Bible Moralises. However, most illustrated apocalypses produced in England have the Berengordus Gloss. Why was he so popular? Uh, his commentary seems to have been well known in England by about um, 1100. The earliest English copy dates from the late 11th century um, and came from the Benedictine Abbey of Holmes St. Bennett and copies of Berengordus commentary without illustrations are known to have existed in several English monastic libraries in the 12th and 13th centuries. Another reason is perhaps also that many leading friars 
of the mid-13th century, such as Adam Marsh and his Benedictine contemporary Matthew Parrish, held connections with aristocratic and royal patrons, and so through their knowledge of the commentary could have acted as clerical advisors in the production of English apocalypses, although I will say there's no reason to insist that the compilers were, had to be Franciscans. Sixteen uh, illustrated apocalypses survived from the first period of production, and this is from about 1250 to 1275. Um, some of them are listed on your handout. There's a second period of production that began in the early 14th century. Now, the manuscripts that are listed in your handout should be on the second page. These are the earliest ones. And they come from about 1250 to 1260. And they can be divided into two groups, plus an isolated manuscript, which is the Trinity Apocalypse of about 1255-1260, whose image is only indirectly related to those in the main groups. So Latin-only texts began in a picture book format, with text inscriptions from both Revelation and Berengordus' commentary set on scrolls or placards within the images. So this is what you find here. Lovely things like this. The picture book archetype uh, of this type was probably produced in the 1240s but does not survive and the earliest form is preserved in two copies from the 1250s and this is the Morgan and Bodleian Apocalypses. This type uh, was adapted as early as 1250-1255 in the Paris and Metz Apocalypses into the most popular format which sets half-page rectangular miniatures placed above two-column text and here we have example the Metropolis and a slightly later one and the third format which appears as early as um, the 1250s has pictures of different sizes placed in various positions in two columns of text and this is the isolated Trinity Apocalypse. Now if we have a look at the imagery in the Norwich Apocalypse and as usual the Norwich Apocalypse has a number of features which sets it apart from other late medieval apocalypses to which it must be compared and discussed. One is the number of images. There's a list of the images on your handout, which should be the last um, table on there. The Norwich Apocalypse contains 32 illustrations in total, and this amounts to about half the usual figure of around 75 found in many luxury illustrated Anglo-Norman apocalypses. Another difference is its optimism. So the choice of scenes and symbols are decidedly optimistic in their subject matter. So other than the riders brought forth by the seals, the beast beneath the woman clothed in sun and the harlot on the beast, there are no pictorial demonstrations of the cataclysmic destruction to befall the earth and all mankind at the end of time. Instead, the illustrations in the Norwich Apocalypse concentrate on the angelic revelation to God of Christ triumphant. So we have representations of Christ in glory, we have the opening, the open door from Revelation 4.1 uh, through which John entered heaven. There's the stylized tree that represents the tree of life mentioned in Revelations 2.7 and the scene of John measuring the temple from Revelations 11.1. Such optimism is markedly different from other illustrated apocalypses of the period, um, many of which also contain scenes of Christ in glory and John measuring the temple, but accompany these with intense highly animated images of death, destruction, plagues, de demons, and the reign of the Antichrist. You can see here um, some of these wonderful images of the beast, the destruction. There's one of the angels with the trumpets, uh, and it looks like the reign of the Antichrist at the end. Now, despite its emphasis on a triumphant Christ and the Christian faith, there is no illustration in the Norwich Apocalypse of the final goal that is John's vision of the New Jerusalem. We find this in many contemporary um, manuscripts. Here is um, British Library additional manuscript uh, 17333. You often get these lovely visions of the new Jerusalem coming down out of the sky. Instead, the program ends with almost identical vague scenes of John conversing with the angel. It's unclear what part of Revelation they're depicting. Before switching to what seems to be two biographical scenes of John before an altar, this is his last mass, this is the one at the bottom here, uh, and his death. And neither of these scenes, of course, relate to things found in the book of Revelation. The subject matter is instead sourced from the Acts of John, which is an apocryphal work dating to the mid-2nd century. Now, there is a collection of 13th century illustrated apocalypses, 
that prefixed and affixed to the book of Revelation a pictured cycle of the life and death of John, such as here. Um, and we have, so here's an example here, another manuscript in the British Library. But these contain a far more complex pictorial cycle than the mere two that we find in the Norwich Apocalypse. Um, if they do contain the life and death of John, they are more likely to be complete cycles. Another thing particular to the Norwich Apocalypse is the type of imagery. One of the most peculiar features of the Norwich Apocalypse is a lack of consistency in how the illustrations are positioned in relation to the text. Instead, they appear in one of three ways. Now, the first 17 illustrations are small scenes or symbols placed within the columns of text. These maintain as intimate a relationship as possible with their related scriptural text. So when you read the text, you immediately see its pictorial representation. So what we have here uh, in that small scene there, that's a scene that talks about the 24 elders from Revelation 4 and what you find immediately above it in the underlined section there is the, the part from Revelation. And again here, talking about the keys here, this is from Revelation 3.7. And the bit that talks about the key actually touches top bit of the key there and the bottom bit there. That's the scriptural extract. There is only one example of the second type of image placement. So this here, the illustration of the rider of the third seal on the verso of folio 27 is a rectangular half page image set above two columns of text in the style of the most common form found in the lavishly illustrated apocalypses of the second half of the 13th century. The illustration still shares a physical relationship to the scriptural passages, passage it pictures. For the extract and commentary on Revelation uh, 6, uh, verse 5 to 6, begins in the right-hand column below. So it starts. Now the illustrations within the column and this half-page image belong to the choirs of the first scribe. To accomplish both forms, the scribe had to leave room for the images. The illustrations are therefore um, an intentional part of the page design before any text has been written. By contrast, the third type of image placement is an inserted picture page. Here we go, these full page images. These are framed and they're usually they're inserted at regular intervals about every 20 leaves in the choirs of the second scribe. So they appear at folios 35, 54 and 74. They're on parchment that has been tinted or painted white the image of the woman clothed in sun, which is the one you see here, and the death of John, which we saw before, are full-page single images. The re remainder group their scenes into three registers, as in the one on the left here. The leaves are inserted at the start of the sequence they illustrate, necessitating the distancing of the image-text relationship. So what we have here with the one on the left, um, so this is the first inserted picture page on folio 35, and it covers scenes from Revelations 8 through to 17. And the images are placed at the start of that sequence, as in on the commentary on Revelation 8, meaning the scene of the woman clothed in the sun, which appears on the back here, appears long before it does in the commentary. Inserted, inserted picture pages require no prior planning in terms of the page layout. Such differences in picture placement within the same manuscript are quite uncommon. It's as if the first scribe was directed to leave space for images, but the second scribe was not. And so the illustrator needed to produce separate picture pages that were then later inserted into the choirs. A misunderstanding about how the illustrations were placed within the commentary perhaps also explains the surprising absence of the writer of the fourth seal. Now the four writers are among the most common scenes in medieval English illustrated manuscripts of the Book of Revelation. And I give an example here um, from the British Library Additional Manuscript 17333, and they're usually depicted individually. The cycle of horsemen in the Norwich Apocalypse ends abruptly with the rider of the third, uh, third seal on the verso of folio 27. So that's it, yes. That's mine. It is that one, yeah. This also happens to be the last page on which the first scribe worked. So perhaps there was an oversight or miscommunication about the illustrated program. And when it came to the choirs of the second scribe, who, as we know, left no space for any, any illustrations, the fourth writer was merely abandoned in favour of scenes from later on in Revelation. 
Despite the problem of the lost fourth rider, similarities in style and iconography suggest a single illustrator worked on the images in the Norwich Apocalypse. So you can see here, these are from the two different parts, the two different scribes. So the manner of detailing hair and fabric with simple squiggly lines are comparable between the writer of the third seal here on folio 27 and John conversing with the angel here on folio 54, as are their shapeless body forms and the colour palette. The manner of illustration is also consistent throughout the work, the illustrator using a technique called tinted drawing in which the outlines of the subject are drawn in um, black or coloured ink and tints of coloured wash are then applied to all or some of the surfaces and this is um, what is found in most English apocalypses of this period. But as for any compositional or iconographic associations between illustrations in the Norwich Apocalypse and other contemporary illustrated English apocalypses, these, as far as I can see, are only general. So if we have a look at the vision of Christ with the sword from Revelations 1 verses 12 to 16 on the Recto of Folio 8, what we have in the Norwich Apocalypse is a squat, rounded Christ. He's centred and frontal before a decorated table it's covered with seven candlesticks. You've got three on the left and four on the right. He has a sword in his mouth, his right hand raised and encompassed by the sun, and a red and yellow nimbus encircling his head. Now, if we have a look at other examples of this illustration, in the British Library Additional Manuscript 17333, which is about um, 1320 to 1330, the candlesticks are not situated on the table, and the sword in Christ's mouth hangs towards the ground. There's one on the top left here. In other examples, the number of candlesticks on either side of Christ is reversed from what we find in our manuscript, and the table is represented by a mere line, in contrast to the more elaborate structure that we see in the Norwich Apocalypse. We have far more decoration in ours. And in each of the examples, Christ is slender, he holds a book, and is revered by John, and these are details that are completely missing in the Norwich Apocalypse. So we can observe a general iconographic relationship of the Norwich Apocalypse illustration to these others, but one that is not anywhere near as apparent as, the, say, if we have a look at like the Burkhard Wilt one here, um, and the British Library Additional Manuscript 35166. And again, if we look at uh, the picture of the rider with the scales on the verso of folio 27, that's the one in Norwich Apocalypse's top left, He's depicted looking forward over the horse's head and moves towards the left. In most other contemporary apocalypse manuscripts, the horse moves to the right and the rider either turns to look out at us or back to the figure of John um, and his apocalyptic winged bull that descends from a cloud. So these supplementary features with John uh, and the bull are completely missing in the Norwich Apocalypse. Perhaps the closest compositional parallel can be observed in the biographical scene of John before the altar. In the merge scene of scenes of John's last mass and his death in the Bodleian Apocalypse and British Library Additional Manuscript 35166, which you see on this side here. John stands to the left of a draped altar with a covered chalice centred upon it, his hands raised in prayer, and this is pictures that we see in the Norwich Apocalypse, which is on your left there. However, the following scene of John's death, while evidently related, whether um, directly or from a common archetype, in the Bodleian Apocalypse and well, between these two is entirely different in composition in the Norwich Apocalypse and what we see here it's more of an aerial view rather than this bit from the side. In other instances the Norwich Apocalypse departs wholly from the details and scenes found in other illustrated English apocalypses. So the rider with sword brought forth with the opening of the second seal He's depicted in long, yellowy-green robes in the Norwich Apocalypse, and this is a far cry from his usual representation in knightly chainmail, and this is obviously drawing from the culture of chivalry that defined the aristocracy in the Middle Ages. And the depiction of the woman clothed in sun from Revelations 12, um, verse 1-2, which is perhaps the prettiest of all the illustrations in the Norwich Apocalypse, and certainly the most complex in terms of compositional structure and iconography, it's completely unrelated to other representations of the scene in illustrated manuscripts. And usually what you see here is a woman surrounded by concentric circles, rubbing her belly, um, or delivering her offspring up to heaven, as you find here. So what we have with the Norwich Apocalypse is a manuscript whose illustrated program and iconographic content does not seem in any way that I can say at the moment, but of course my research is in no way exhaustive, 
to derive directly from other related English apocalypses of the late 13th and 14th century. But perhaps our expectations of the Norwich apocalypse are unfairly high, for there is a great discrepancy between the quality of execution between the Norwich apocalypse and its contemporaries. The thin black lines in the Norwich apocalypse illustration leave little scope for detailing. Let's see if I've got some pictures. There we go. The colour palette is mainly blocks of green, red, blue, yellow and orange. There is minimal use of highlighting and a complete lack, um, a complete absence of illumination and shading. Uh, there's this policy that one shade of colouring does all and it produces pictures that lack tone and depth. There are no backgrounds or scenery. Instead, instead scenes are stripped back to their essential elements, sometimes represented just by a mere symbol. And this is a form, such as you see on the right here, that you don't see um, in other apocalypses. The figure of John, who stands resolutely as a pictorial guide beside almost every scene in most illustrated English apocalypses, is absent in the Norwich Apocalypse. We can see him, it's usually off to the side in all the other pictures. The illustrations lack a sense of realism and movement and instead appear clumsy and ill-proportioned. It's not to say that the style and quality that we have isn't without equal, and I'll give you an example here from the Rochester Chronicle. Here, you can see some um, in the detailing of the crown and the face have some sort of similarities. But such simplicity and poor execution contrasts with the highly complex narrative programs and artistic skills of illuminators who worked on other contemporary illustrated apocalypses. I'll give you some examples here. They are just lovely to look at. But in these luxury apocalypses, image takes precedence over text. These are predominantly visual in form and purpose. Whereas text takes precedence over image in the Norwich Apocalypse. And in many ways, the value of the Norwich Apocalypse always lay with its complete edition of Baron Gordis's commentary. This is a reference work, not a luxury item. And we saw this when we looked at the text and the images. Or when we looked at the script and the imagery. Why would a reference work need illustrations? I don't know, perhaps it's a low-grade copy uh, for um, a wealthy local family. Perhaps it was produced... Um, for um, privately in a monastery, I'm not too sure. Uh, I don't know. I'll leave it there. More questions, more things to research. Thank you very much. <laughs>